New Mexico this week, there was a, a rising political star, a state legislature who uh, much has been said about her political future. She's been a strong proponent throughout uh, her life of tougher sentences on DWI offenders, which is a big deal in New Mexico. It's a big political issue there. Um, well, earlier this week at about two in the morning, she was pulled over by a police officer who this is all recorded on his his uh, body cam and makes quite entertaining watching. Don't watch it here or now though, please. Uh, Walks up to her car and asks her, have you been drinking? And she says, why absolutely not. Not today, I've had nothing to drink today. And he says, have you had anything at all to drink today? No, not at all. And uh, he says, that's strange because I I can smell alcohol coming out of your car. I smell it. And she's like, no. And I want you to know this, officer. I am against drunk driving. I'm against it. Uh, In fact, I've sponsored lots of of bills that would regulate it and make harsher punishment for it. I mean, I'm against drunk driving. So he says, would you step out of the car? And uh, he says, I'm going to give you a series of tests now and, uh, you know, do these instructions. And she does the instructions and, you know, she doesn't crash and burn at them. Like it's not that she's fallen all over the place or anything, but I would say she did not, you know, she did not make her best case that she had not been drinking. Let me put it that way. (laughs) And uh, after all of these these tests the officer gives her, all of which are recorded, um, she says, you know, one more thing to the officer. I, this year, sponsored a bill uh, to help uh, eliminate drunk driving. She uh, sponsored a bill to get Uber to operate in New Mexico. So, you know, people who had been drinking have an easier time to get home, I guess was the logic. And she says, you know, that, that's me. I did this. And so I'm on your side on this. And uh, he's like, okay. And then she says, can you tell me whether or not I passed your tests? And this is the line. He says, the tests I gave you, they're not pass or fail tests. There's just a series of instructions that help me gauge whether or not you're being truthful to me. Now turn around and put your hands behind your back. <laughs> and yes, she got arrested. Now, when you look at James chapter one, James chapter one is not a series of pass or fail tests to see if you're a Christian. It's not as if you mess up one of these and the wrong box is checked and you're not a real Christian. That's not what this is. This is a series of general instructions to help gauge your truthfulness when you say that you're a follower of Christ. This is not pass-fail here in James 1. What this is is some broad categories, broad descriptions or instructions, because many of them are imperatives, broad instructions for you to follow and how you respond to these commands are a fairly good indicator to yourself and to others about whether or not you are a real follower of Christ. Now, I haven't put uh, James 1 quite with a summary yet, so I hope this is helpful to you as you think through this, this whole chapter through the lens of marks of a real believer. For example, back earlier in verse 2, you can ask yourself this, do you count it joy when you experience various trials? Knowing that it's God who's working through these trials. When, when God puts trials in your life, you respond with joy, or in the language later on in verse 19, do you respond with anger? Do you respond with joy to trials, or do you respond with anger to trials? Do you, if you keep going through chapter 1 down to verse 3 and 4, do you persevere through trials? 
Do you keep your faith? Do you hold on to your integrity in Christ as you go through trials? Or do you get rid of your integrity? Do you get rid of your faith as you approach trials? Do you ask God for wisdom to help you push through trials? Do you ask God for wisdom to help you understand how you're supposed to respond to these trials? Or do you doubt that God has anything to do with them? Do you, as you go through trials, recognize that it is God who is working in your life to will and to act according to his good purpose? These trials are from the good pleasure of the heavenly father of lights who has a plan for you and who is working to grow you into spiritual maturity. Do you recognize that God is sovereign over your trials? Or do you reject God's hands on your trials? Do you reject his fingerprints? And do you say, no, these have nothing to do with God and then get angry at God for them anyway? Do you trust God as you pray for wisdom? Or do you doubt that God is involved in these trials? Because the one who doubts is blown back and forth, tossed by the waves of the sea. Do trials therefore work for your spiritual maturity? Or do trials work for your spiritual immaturity and animosity towards God? Do you receive the truth from God's word as you go through trials? Or do you get angry with God? Do trials sanctify you? Or do they provoke you to sin? Because it's not God who's doing that. Now, with all these questions, again, they're not yes or no questions. It's not black or white. You know, that's how John writes. In 1 John, John uses these same kind of categories, but he's black or white. He says, look, are you in the light or are you in the darkness? Which is it? (laughs) Are you speaking the truth or are you lying to me? That's how John operates. James here is with broader categories, broader terms, and he just wants to know. Generally speaking, do you respond with obedience or do you respond with sin? Generally speaking, are you growing in your trust? It's not like, oh, I encountered a trial last week and I didn't rejoice, therefore I don't know if I'm a Christian or you know, there's still sins I haven't put off, I'm working on it. That's not what James is talking about. He's talking about the ongoing patterns of your life. And he ended back in verse 21 with, do you put away filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive the implanted word? And he's gonna double down on that last one. He's gonna straight up challenge you and ask you, do you have the regular pattern of obeying God's word? Don't make the mistake of saying, oh, James is saying, am I perfect? Only perfect people can be Christians. He's not saying that. He's just asking if you have the regular pattern of obedience in your life. In fact, look at the language in verse 22. Be doers of the word. That's the imperative. Be this way. Be a doer of the word. And that, uh, grammarians call that a substantive, the word doer there. It's a, it's a verb that's become a noun. It's unusual. You don't use that kind of phrase in English. You don't ask, are you a doer? You know, unless you mean it kind of like idiomatically, it's not just a, a real phrase you would say. And it's unusual in the Greek too. The verb, of course, is to do, and James is making it into a noun. And let me help explain it to you this way. If you played soccer last weekend for the first time in your life, that doesn't make you a soccer player. Just because you played at some a family picnic one afternoon does not make you a soccer player. If you pick up a book this afternoon and it's not your normal habit of reading, but you pick up a book this afternoon and read a chapter from it, that doesn't make you a reader. If you filled in for a Sunday school class because one of the teachers called in sick, maybe she stayed up late after a homeschool retreat to Kentucky, and you, call and you subbed in as your first time teaching Sunday school, you're not going to do it again, that doesn't make you a teacher. Or in language that some of you can understand. Not everybody who sings is a singer. 
Amen? <laughs> Not everybody who does the word of God is a doer. Just because you occasionally happen to do something the Bible commands, that doesn't make you, that doesn't give you the characteristic of being a doer. And that's what James is asking about. He's telling you actually, not asking, he's telling you, he's demanding you, hey, if you're going to be a Christian, if you're following Christ, you had better be a doer of the word. And he contrasts it, not a hearer only in verse 22, not hearers only, that phrase hearer, also a very unusual Greek word. It's in secular Greek writing. It's a, a word for somebody who just attends lectures for free. In English, you call those an auditor. <laughs> and that's what he means by this. Not an auditor. He doesn't want you to be an auditor of the word. Now, an auditor, when I was in college, I never audited a class. It didn't make any sense to me. Why would you do that to yourself? Why would you, why would you go to class that you don't have to be at? I barely went to the classes I was enrolled in. Why would I audit a class? I went to, when I went to seminary, I took a class actually on exegesis of James. Dr. Felix took it, paid for it, loved it. Later on, there was a visiting professor, Dr. Moo from uh, Trinity Seminary. He's written many commentaries on James. He was spending a semester teaching at Masters, and he was teaching that class, exegesis of James. And, you know, he's the most famous James scholar alive, and he was teaching at uh, a seminary I was at, and I'd already paid for the class years earlier, which means I got to audit it. I got to go for free, and now I'm excited about auditing a class. Yay! And I loved auditing in some regards because there's two great advantages auditors have. One, they don't have to do any work. So I'm just sitting in the, the back row of class with my Starbucks, listening. The second great thing about being an auditor is that you don't have to pay. Oh, golden. It doesn't cost me anything, and I don't have to do any work. I can just sit and observe. This is the word James uses about the church. And he says that some of you are auditing. Some of you are auditors here. You didn't enroll you're not paying to be here. You haven't, you know, made some kind of uh, commitment to Christ, or maybe you have. You haven't been baptized. You haven't, you know, gotten up in front of everybody and, and shared your testimony and, and demonstrated that you want to follow Christ. You haven't done that. Or maybe you have also done that, but you've never been committed to the church. You're not, you're not living out the Christian life. You're just here listening as if it's a spectator sport. Could have gone to a football game tonight, but instead you're, you're here this morning just watching, listening. You're an auditor. And James says, don't be that person, which is going to lead to my first point here. Auditors are deceived by self. Auditors are deceived by self. James says in verse 22, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Auditors are self-deceived. Now, what are they deceived about? They're deceived that they're, that they're Christians, that they're following Christ. They're not following Christ. They're just auditing Christ. <laughs> They're not connected to Christ. They don't have faith that plants them in Christ. They're not in Christ. They're auditing Christ. They're observing, spectating, watching, listening, entertained by it perhaps even. They think that they're saved, but they're not a doer of the word. And for those people, James says, they have been 
self-deceived. You're deceiving yourselves. You can't blame anybody else for it, James is saying. It's not like your parents misinformed you about Christianity or the friend who invited you the first time didn't tell you what you were getting into and now five years later, here you are, but it's not your fault. No, you're self-deceived. You're deceiving your own self. Notice this word too, the word deceived here. This whole section is filled with lots of unusual Greek words. This is not the normal word for deceived. This is a word that means miscalculated. It's used only in one other place in the, in the Bible, in Colossians, where Paul says, do not uh, be deceived. Don't let your mind be taken captive by empty philosophy and the psychology of the world, which will, will ensnare you and is not from the truth about Christ. That's the word that's used there. It's the same word that's used here. Do not be deceived. Don't be miscalculated. It's a mathematical term. It's a term in the, in the ancient Greek or in the, the, uh, the Greek world of Jesus' lifetime that mathematicians would use for a, a theory that doesn't quite add up. You can show your work, but you forgot to carry the one. You just didn't quite get the answer right. I have a, one of my daughters is learning math facts. And there's a curriculum that she's using that is teaching her to learn math facts by learning uh, the double facts. And so, for example, eight plus six, you know, should be 14 because you have, have gone through the, the first grade. So you know that. Uh, this curriculum teaches her eight plus six. This is how you learn four, 14. You do eight plus eight, doubles fact, which is 16. Take away two, because eight, take away two to six. Eight, 16, take away two is 14. There, see how easy that is? That, thing would, that sentence would have been gibberish to me a few months ago, but now I'm teaching my daughter this curriculum, and so I, that sentence makes perfect sense to me now, and eight plus six is 14, okay? Here's the tricky part. There was one encounter with this eight plus six fact where my daughter was quite positive that the answer should be 18. Eight plus six should be 18. Why do you say that? Well, because eight plus eight is 16. Six and eight are two apart, and so two would be 18, eight plus six. There's a certain logic to it. Do you appreciate the logic? I mean, I, I, she's getting the point of the curriculum, I guess. Insert common core joke here, but I would never say that from the pulpit. <laughs> and so what followed was quite a spirited discussion in the Johnson household about why eight plus six is in fact 14 and not 18. And, you know, I'm, I get out my phone and so she can see it, eight plus seven, but, you know, believe what she sees on phones? No way. She's not even allowed to have one. Come on. If you say that you are a follower of Christ, but you're not a doer of the word of God, you're deceived. You're miscalculating. You're wrong. You're saying that eight plus six is 18, and it's not and you can be convinced of this in your own mind, and you can show your work behind you in your own mind, but you are not adding the numbers up correctly. You don't understand what you're talking about. You're wrong. There was a, a school of theology that swept through American evangelicalism in the 1980s and the 1990s, uh, and they called it no lordship salvation, and that was the phrase that they used to describe their, their teaching. The people who wrote books on this, they called themselves the no lordship view. And they, I took some lines from some of those books to just give you an idea of what their, their teaching was like. They taught that a person could be saved without being a follower of Christ. Or they could be saved by saying the sinner's prayer, but without being regenerated. Or they could be saved by recognizing that Jesus is God, 
but not by recognizing that he is Lord. And so making a distinction there that you can be a Christian by saying Jesus is God and not seeing him Lord because Lord would imply obedience, I guess, was their distinction or, you know, by saying the sinner's prayer, but that doesn't actually connect to regeneration. That's a different thing that might happen later in life or uh, by saying uh, I'm a Christian because, um, you know, I believe in Jesus, but I'm not a follower of Jesus. It's like a second thing that would come later on in life. That was the distinction they made. And in reading these books, which I, I have read many of these such books, this is the logic that they present. If you say that salvation should produce to change life, or that somebody who becomes a Christian should be then a doer of the word of God, what you're saying then is that salvation comes by works. That you have to do these things in order to be a Christian. And we know that salvation is by faith and not by works. Therefore, you can't say that salvation produces a changed life. There's a certain logic to it, it's in the same category of eight plus six is 18, but there's certain logic to it. You can follow along with the math. It's just it's miscalculated because James is not saying here that if you're a doer of the word, you're saved by works. He's saying that if you are genuinely a follower of Christ, you will in turn be a doer of the word. Not that being a doer makes you a follower of Christ, but making you a follower of Christ makes you a doer. In other words, you're saved by faith alone, but authentic faith is never alone. It always produces fruit. It always makes effects in your life. So James says, if you say that you are a hearer only, that you only hear the word of God and that's what makes you a follower of Christ and you think that is true, you are deceived. Don't fool yourself. And you're doing it to yourself. Understand that there is no distinction between being a authentic, a real follower of Christ and being a Christian and actually following Christ. There's no difference between being a believer and a disciple. This is a package deal, my friends. Don't be a hearer only. Be a doer. Be a doer. And I'm not even, in that form of theology, it's usually often about friends or, or children or, or relatives that people are talking about. And that's not even, I don't think, James's big concern here. I think James is writing to first-generation Christianity. He's not talking about people's kids. He's talking about people who are listening. And Jesus had these people around him too. Remember in his Sermon on the Mount, which much of James is drawn from, he's speaking out in the wilderness by the sea. And there were thousands of people that came out to listen to him talk. And they would have all said that they're followers of, of the Savior. After all, they followed him to the wilderness. But once he makes a demand on their life, where do they go? Home. They were just auditing. The Sermon on the Mount, like them, was, was entertainment for them. It was something to watch. And hopefully it came with food at the end. That would be the best case scenario. And when there was no food, they were done. They were the foolish people who heard the word of God but didn't do them. And I hope there's not people like that today in the church that come week after week just to audit, just to listen, just to hear. There's a certain kind of mentality which, again, doesn't make sense to me. It, I wasn't raised in a Christian home. 
So in my mind, if the Bible's not true and if we're not living this out, like what are we doing here? Let's, let's go watch football. <laughs> I don't even know it's football season. It might be somewhere. There's something on. Caps are in the World Series or something like that right now. <laughs> but if this isn't true, let's go do that. But if it is true, then we better hang our lives on this. But I know that there's some that come and they don't let the word go from their ears to their heart. They're just, it's a spectator. They're auditing. They're listening. And they come every week, have the comfortable parking spot, have the same spot in the pew, will be to the visitor who sits in that spot. They have their friends at church. It's a comfortable place for them to be. They have friends here. Not spiritual friends, mind you, and the distinction is they're not talking about spiritual things with their friends. They're talking about caps kind of things with their friends. In fact, if they were to not be here, they would probably start to feel uncomfortable. If they were to miss a few Sundays in a row, they might even feel guilty about it. And it's worth asking, what draws them? Why do they come? And, and it's not moralism. This is different than the moralist. The moralist comes because they want to learn how to lead a better life. They want to do better things to be better to God, which is bad thinking, but that's what draws the moralist. These people aren't moralists. I think they really are drawn by the power of Christ and his word. And Spurgeon said it this way about them. <laughs> Spurgeon said, I think they are drawn by the power of Jesus and his word. And to prove that, let me do a month-long experiment. I'm quoting Spurgeon here. Let me do a month-long experiment. I will preach from the pulpit on domestic architecture for four Sundays and see if they still come back. I will give them music and not meat and see what pillow they have to lay their spiritual heads on. In other words, if Spurgeon were to get up and talk about arches instead of the word of God, they would stop coming. And so they're only coming because it's the teaching from the Bible, but they're still auditing it. They're just watching it but they have convinced themselves it doesn't need to translate into their own life for whatever reason. Maybe they have a theological explanation why they don't have to obey. Maybe they have a category distinction they're holding on to that they don't need to be a follower of Christ to still be a Christian. Who knows what they've got going on, but the point is they have miscalculated. They're self-deceived. Which leads to the second point. They're also obvious to others. Auditors are self-deceived, but auditors are also obvious to others. And this goes to quite a humorous illustration that James gives, and he means it to be funny. I hope you find it funny, because that's James's point here. If anyone is a hearer, an auditor of the word, and not a doer, verse 23, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. <laughs> In the Greek world, they had these mirrors of burnished bronze. It was scuffed out, and you could hold it up, and you could see your face in it. It wasn't glass, but it was good enough to get the job done. And James is giving you this picture of a person who looks in the mirror intently. They're not looking like just, you know, passing by in the hallway kind of glance. They're actually intently gazing at themselves in the mirror. In other words, they're getting ready when you gaze at yourself in the mirror. In the morning, when you're getting ready, you're putting back together what the world did to you overnight. <laughs> You're fixing it. And maybe you get distracted like halfway through. You know, you, if you have children, I don't even need any more of an explanation for that. <laughs> Nothing is more inviting to children than the closed bathroom door with you getting ready on the other side. I'm speaking mostly to mothers here. They understand that. There's anarchy on the other side once the, the makeup starts to be applied. 
Or I come out of the bathroom and come downstairs and I've got my tie around my neck, but I never quite put it on. I did forgot to put it on. I thought it was on and I was looking at the mirror and I was, or one of my kids uh, will say, do you want to have that big pile of shaving soap behind your ear? I don't think it's supposed to be there. It's <laughs> like, no, of course it is. Thank you. Just, I was looking at myself, but I forgot that it was there. I forgot my tie wasn't on. I forgot the little buttons that they put on these, some of these things are not buttoned. I forgot about it. I saw it in the mirror. I should button them. And I just spaced it out and went about my, my day. You know, the half of the makeup is on and half of the other half of the hair is done, but they didn't, just didn't quite meet in the middle there yet. Got distracted. And you've seen that. You see somebody at church and they have what looks like an entire Snickers bar on the front of their tooth. Do you say something about it? Like, oh, you've got to, or do you just It's better to let it go. And by better, I mean maybe more humorous. No, it would be loving to say something. But don't nip. You know what? I, I don't want to get too far afield here. <laughs> well, James says this is what it's like for the person who's coming to church to stare at the word of God. And they're looking intently at it. And now he's, he's almost being funny here. What are they really studying when they're studying the Bible? Themselves. <laughs> That's the auditor's dilemma here, is they're actually just studying themselves. And then irony upon irony is the sermon is over and they go away and they forgot what was said about God and themselves. In fact, he says they forgot their natural born face. It's the, the word is Genesis there, which means the, their nature, the face that they came into this world with. And James is making now a spiritual point. At the, the Bible should convict them of their own sin, but they leave church and they forgot that they're a sinner. They were getting dressed in the morning and they forgot they didn't put their shirt on yet. <laughs> and they act like they're ready for the world. You're missing something. They hear the preaching and it doesn't get to their heart. They think they're okay without applying it. How can you look in the mirror of God's word and think you're okay without doing what it says? You forget how you were born. You forget Genesis 6. You came into this world with every thought and every inclination of your heart only evil continually. You forgot about that. And you think, you know what? I'm fine as I am. I'm fine as I am. And these are the people that are, they're well known by those around them. This is the person that comes to, to church and they're sermon experts. <laughs> they, oh, they love good preaching. They love good preaching. They'll say, oh, I came to this church because it's got good preaching. Not like my last church. They didn't have good preaching. This is a good preaching. Oh, the 9.7 card in the back. Funny introduction, but what happened to the legislature? Botch the conclusion. Something like that. They love illustrations, especially about pastor's daughters. Love those illustrations. They just don't obey what the sermon's about. You see these in, I see these kind of people in men's ministries often. They, they come to men's ministries. They like going to men's events, men's events. Right, what we need is more practical sermons on how to be a better husband. Love, love me some Ephesians 5 sermons. I want, a, I want a sermon on how to love my wife. Teach me how to love my wife and, and be a good dad and all that. And then you go home and they don't actually do any of it. They love to be taught about how to love their wives. They just don't actually then in turn love their wife. <laughs> or 
or in the women's ministry side, women that, that oh, they love women's ministry Bible studies because it teaches them how to be a loving mom and how to submit to their husbands and how to do all the, the motherly things and the, 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 how to be a godly wife and they just want to be taught that and we need practical teaching on that and practical teaching on that and they go home and they don't do all of it. The irony of you know, men's ministry is how many men's it seems, how many men it seems spend less time at home so they can be at more men's events. <laughs> You have to actually act on what you're hearing. And so you can play on the gender stereotypes of the men's and women's events and that makes it funny and you laugh, but you understand that's Sunday in and Sunday out for some people. Every Sunday, hearing the word of God but not doing it. Oh, pastor, what we need around here is more sermons on evangelism. More sermons on evangelism. And you want to ask, how often have you shared the gospel in the last month? Oh, but that's because you're not preaching on it. <laughs> we need, what we need around here is more teaching on prayer. Teach us more about prayer. Are you praying? That's because you're not teaching us how. I don't think so. That's the sermon snobbery where your palate, your ears know what they want to be itched. A child who goes to, loves the messages in Sunday school and honoring their father and their mother, but you know what doesn't happen at home? <laughs> the person who loves good preaching as long as it doesn't cut cl- too close to the cotton. Some of these people are great note takers too. And I even joked last week, you know, you should take notes because it gives you a better seat in heaven. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, I see the notebook. Amen, sister. Um, and that's funny because you understand the point of note-taking is to help you remember what you, heard, what you heard so that you can, of course, do it and apply it. And I'm grateful for note-taking. There was a couple months ago where I got asked to teach last minute to some uh, something down in, in D.C., Fellowship of Christian Athletes thing, and I think their speaker fell through. And uh, last minute I'm driving out there, and on the way out there I thought, oh, I know the perfect message. I have the perfect message that I want this group to hear. I taught it three years ago to our young adults ministry, but I've got my computer with me and I can't find it on my computer and I'm going through my mind and I remember one of the people who was there, one of the, one of the young adults who was there. And I know that person and he always takes notes and I text him from, the, from my, my car and not texting while driving. I was actually in the Costco parking lot at the time, but work with me here. And I text him like, I need this message. And he texts it back to me right away. He had the notes on his phone and he texted me his notes from three years ago. And I get to the FCA thing and I just preach off of my phone. I've got his notes, which are my notes from years ago. And what a time saver. So glad that guy takes notes. And now I hope that he lives out I know this guy, he actually does live it out, but <laughs> what a waste of time to be the note taker and not the, the liver, the one who, who actually does. And now notice the main point with, with James, James is making here. The problem with this person is not how long he looked into the mirror. The problem is that he wasn't doing what it said. The problem with the auditor is not in his study habits. So don't make the mistake of thinking, oh, what this person needs to do is spend more time studying God's word. That's not his problem. Oh, he is a student, the best of the students. He's just not paying for the class. 
He's not making any kind of, and I don't mean he's not putting money in the offering plate, although maybe that's true. I mean, he's not willing to make any sacrifices in his life that demonstrate the, the worth of the gospel. Of course he's not evangelizing at work. I mean, that could get you in trouble. Of course he's not marked by prayer. He's getting sort things out on his own. That's the auditor. He's obvious to others. He's mocked by James. And the problem is not his study habits, it's his life habits. He sees the Christian life as happening in the classroom and not in the world. What a contrast with this third person, the third point here, that doers are blessed by God. Verse 25, the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres. Perseveres in doing is the point. Being no hearer only who forgets, but a doer who acts. He's the one who will be blessed in his doing. You know, Spurgeon, who said, the snail by his perseverance gets onto the ark. (laughs) I was at the ark this week. It's in my mind. (laughs) Last week was the read your Bible more sermon. This week is the do what it says more sermon. James says, the one who looks into the perfect law. Now, the perfect law here, there's five different ways the Bible uses the word law. Let me just rattle them off to you so you know what we're talking about here. One way is God's moral law. In other words, people know that lying is wrong and adultery is wrong and stealing is wrong. And they don't know that because the Bible says it. They know it because God's revealed that in the conscience. It's God's moral law. The other way is the Torah. The, sometimes the Bible uses the word law just to mean the first five books of the Bible. Sometimes the Bible uses the word law to refer to commandments or imperatives that you can't keep, such as be holy because God is holy. The uh, Lutherans and Presbyterians refer to that as the law category of scripture. Sometimes the word law means the New Testament commands, the law of Christ, what Christians are, are given to for direct obedience. But I don't think James is talking about any of those categories here. James is using the phrase, the perfect law, to speak to all of Scripture. All of Scripture is God's perfect law. That's the way it's used in Psalm 119. In Psalm 19, I think that's what James means here. He's not talking about uh, the New Testament, of course. This is probably the second book after Matthew written in the New Testament. It's just a generic term. He's saying that you need to do what you hear. He's not saying that Christians are under the, the five books of the Bible. He's not saying that Christians need to keep the Levitical law. He's just making a general statement that if you are a follower of Christ, you are marked by somebody who does what the Bible says. You don't follow Jesus out in the wilderness for the Sermon on the Mount and then go home and not do what he said. You want to listen to the words of God. No matter what the sermon is on on the Sunday, you go and you listen to it and then you act on it. And he calls it the law of liberty. And what a great phrase that is. Because apart from Christ, you don't have the ability to keep the law. You can't do what the Bible says. You know, you're under the burdens of man-made religions. Your yoke is heavy. And you can't do it. You have ears that are deaf to the commands of Scripture. If you're not a believer, you can't hear the words of Scripture. You, I mean, you hear them, but like Charlie Brown teacher, hear them. You know what I'm saying? It's just a no, 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 no. You don't understand them. You're spiritually dead. Your heart is cold. You're spiritually blind. Your ears are stopped. But when you come to faith in Christ, now the the burden is off. Now the ears are unplugged. Now the eyes can see. Now the soul is alive. And now you are free. You have faith in the Son. Now you have freedom in Christ. This is what it means to be free, to have faith in the Son. And now the question is, what do you use your freedom for? And the answer had better be obedience. 
And now I am free to obey. I'm free to follow Christ. I'm free to love the Lord. That's what the doer does. The doer has the same book as the auditor, but the auditor doesn't have the word implanted in his heart. The doer looks at the word of God and the word is implanted in his heart and there's this sympathetic resonance between the two and it's producing spiritual fruit. You're free to follow the words of God and you persevere through it. Notice that language, you're persevering, you're trucking right on through. You keep on obeying, you're persevering. It's that person, James says. Not the one who forgets what he looked like, but the one who does what the word says. He will be blessed in his doing. Now what are the blessings that come with obedience? Well, they've been listed so far in James. In verse two, you're blessed with spiritual joy. In verse three, you're blessed with endurance and hope. You're blessed with answered prayers. You're blessed with wisdom. You're blessed ultimately with the crown of life. Eternal life, wisdom, hope, joy, spiritual maturity. Those are all the blessings that come for the one who perseveres. In contrast, the one who just hears the word of God and says, hey, take it or leave it. I'll take some, leave some, whatever. That person's not blessed. There's no blessing in simply hearing the word of God. There's this village in Tibet that has hired a monk to stand in the center of the village and read the Tripadaka, which is the Buddhist scriptures, to read it out loud for six to eight hours a day, depending upon weather, the story I read says. (laughs) The problem, the reason he's reading, by the way, is because it blesses the village. The village is blessed to have the scriptures read so they can hear them. The problem is that the Chapatico is written 3,000 plus years ago in a dialect that nobody speaks or understands. Now, phonetically, the language is the same. Pali is the language. It's the same. And so you can phonetically read the words. You just don't know what they mean. And so this man stands up in the middle of the village and he reads for six to eight hours every day from a book that nobody has any idea what it means. (laughs) And the village is blessed because of his reading. And of course we know there's no blessing in that. Are there people here today that are like that with the Bible? I mean, there's no difference between that and the person who just hears the word of God but doesn't respond. It's just the words on the ear. There they are, but it doesn't make it down to the heart. There's no blessing there. We're thankful that we can't obey the word of God on our own. There's nothing we can do to earn salvation. We can't work hard enough to get it. We can't merit it. But praise be to God that Jesus keeps the law in our place, that Jesus led the sinless life, that he died to bear the penalty for our sins so that we don't have to face the judgment of God that he rose from the grave showing that there can be free and eternal life for those who believe that his death was in their place and that his resurrection offers them life. And you believe that and you put your faith in him. And what happens when you do that is that the burden of your sins are taken off. The burden of obedience that you can't do is taken off. You're no longer working for your salvation. That's off. And now because God is pleased with you in Christ, You're no longer trying to perform to earn the 
the pleasure of God, you have freedom to take a deep breath, (laughs) to see your own face in the scripture, your own sins in the scripture, to put them off and to do what the Bible says, not to earn God's pleasure, but because you love him and Christ and his spirit dwell in your heart and so you want to honor him. That's why. That's Christian obedience. And the person who does that will be blessed in their doing. Lord, I'm thankful that there is great reward in your scriptures and keeping them there is eternal life. We know that we can never obey enough (laughs) or strive enough or work hard enough to earn eternal life. So we're thankful that you give it as a gift. We also know, Lord, that it's a gift that changes everything. (laughs) As we go from darkness to light, death to life, blindness to sight, we can see your word in living color. And so, Lord, we don't want to just hear it. God forbid. We want to do it. We want to be doers of the word. We know that in doing, there is great reward. So, Lord, we pray as we go our way this week that you would be pleased with how we live our life, that you'd be honored in our doing. Not that we're working our way to you, of course not, but because you've already worked your way to us. We want to respond, Lord. You've planted the seed in our heart. We want to water it with your word. And now let it grow and bear fruit as we go our way this week. We ask this in Jesus' name. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.